Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a leading American designer and author whose work explores the area where business, design and technology meet. Given where Detroit ended up, you can project that Silicon Valley will be like that eventually. If something isn't done, and the if something isn't done part has to be about diversifying viewpoints. That was John Mader, Chief Experience Officer at digital consultancy Publicis Sapient. He came into the FT to talk to my colleague Tim Bradshaw about his view that corporations will thrive when they prioritise users over corporate interests or technological advancement when designing their products. I guess before we start talking about the new book, let's talk about one of your older ones, The Laws of Simplicity, which came out when the iPod was the hot new device, and that seemed to be what everyone was trying to kind of achieve. How do you think those principles, I guess the key phrase was simplicity is about subtracting the obvious and adding the meaningful. Does that hold true now that our devices are so much more complicated and capable these days? Have we lost sight of that simplicity goal? That was written in the era of the DVD player, and the cloud was just starting to get cloudy. It was still blue sky back then. There was no cloud out there. And it was talking about that future and expressing my concern that technology had become so empowering and so complex and tying it to some kind of human, emotional part was getting lost. So that's why that book existed. Does it hold up now? I don't think so, because we live in a world that is truly complex, not just complicated. What's the distinction you're drawing? The distinction is that complicated is something you can figure out and make sense. It's just hard. Something complex, you don't understand all the consequences of everything. It's a complex thing you can never understand. And back then, the social media systems hadn't yet taken off. This was the mid-2000s, right? Right. And so you could understand it. You know, you had an iPod. It's hard to use. Oh, my gosh. Touch screen. Much easier. Scroll wheel, etc. Nowadays, computation touches everyone all the time. And the unintended consequences of my knowing what you ate for lunch or my knowing what she said to someone else about me eight years ago <laughs> and have it resurfaced as a wonderful moment, that's a new world. That's a complex world. So as you think about the role of design in that world, in a lot of ways, it feels as though design has improved across technology. Androids started out looking pretty rough around the edges compared to the iPhone and sort of everyone looked at Apple as the polished design leader. Now all of the devices that we have are fairly beautiful, a lot easier to use than they used to be. They may contain this chaos simmering beneath the surface, but do you feel like design as a discipline has been elevated in the tech industry in the 10, 15 years since you wrote that book? And it's complex because I get in trouble nowadays because people ask me, like, have I turned my back on design? Like, what are you talking about experience instead of design? And, you know, the Android example is super important because why was iOS easier to use? It wasn't easier because Steve Jobs said it was easier to use or it was designed beautifully, whatever. It was a closed system. So if you made an iOS app, it was built on top of iOS interface guidelines. What that meant is that if you went from app to app, you were less likely to fail. 
Now, Android phones, right? You come out with Android, like a gazillion versions of Android and handsets. I think of it kind of like maybe in Europe felt this the most when you're driving between countries. I'm sure there was a time where you had no idea how to read the speed limit in a different country. And that's not safe. So material was so important because it created the wayfinding that everyone had to sign on to. This is material design, the sort of principles that Google introduced a few years ago. Exactly. So now if I make my app, and it's like a snacking app versus like a fitness app, they all behave similarly. Material design is more than just the materials part of it, right? Why was that important? It's so important because I had a exhibition in France recently where I put the spotlight on material design. And when I first looked at it, I underestimated it because I thought it was just a visual treatment. But what's so brilliant about material design is that it's gone through all the questions of how to give you high priority information versus lower priority information. There's a concept called elevation, where something is 24 dps, meaning closest to your face, versus zero dps, sort of stuck to the surface of the back plane of the screen. When designers or anyone who are trying to build an application, they have to ask the question, is this important or not? And they give guidelines, simple guidelines like there's high priority buttons, there's medium priority buttons, and there's low priority buttons. There's a pyramid, a triangle. If every button is high priority, nothing is high priority. So like only make one button high priority, which seems kind of obvious, but having these guidelines creates consistency. So that kind of design I think is amazing. Right. Not how it looks, but that consistency and the people who are able to roll that out and productize it. But that's a set of principles for a visual software world. Your job title is chief experience officer. Yeah. I think about it as experience is a broader thing than design. Design is a process to get to an outcome of an experience. And when designers aren't involved in that experience, we say it must have been poorly designed. But actually, it's still a good experience in many cases, even without designers. Think of Amazon.com, which feels horrible and looks horrible, but it works really well. And yes, it's also been designed, but not designed in the Apple way. This other kind of design, I think, is so much more valuable, but I wouldn't even call it design. It's building an experience that works for me. Right. And so one thing that I guess a lot of people in Silicon Valley are thinking about at the moment is as we develop artificial intelligence and all these kind of virtual assistants, there's a lot of talk that the next big computing platform is something called ambient computing, which is some combination of augmented reality and smart speakers, and it's all kind of all over the place. Yeah. You're no longer talking about what happens on a glowing rectangle in front of you. I mean, it could come from anywhere. This sort of computing interface could be completely invisible. You may not even be aware that it's happening. How do you construct that? How do you build that experience and make sure that people still find it intuitive and understand how it works? Well, first of all, that kind of work is work we did at the Media Lab in the 90s. Uh, MIT. Yes. And so like a lot of these things I've already seen before. It just, in the Silicon Valley world, everything seems more awesome and amazing and new. But it's so funny how like a lot of this stuff came from the 60s. Even VR came from the 60s. And I don't mean to put down work now. It's just a question of who makes it and how it's made. In the laws of simplicity, I bring up the Bauhaus, which to every classically trained designer is like a known thing. 
My encounter with the word Bauhaus was the place to get my hair cut. So that, that was where I first heard about Bauhaus. And then when I went to art school, I was like, wow, this is a really famous thing, the Bauhaus school. And the Bauhaus school emerged because the Industrial Revolution was creating things that people didn't actually like, but they were cheap, kind of like tech. And so the hypothesis by the German economic ministry was to fund a school where this relationship to essentially human-centeredness could make the products more valuable. Here's the problem, though. If you tell someone the factory to make it differently and it's impossible to do, then it's not going to ever get made. So the Bauhaus took modernist approaches, the understanding of the material, how it's made, and then discover what you can make with the constraints. And as an analogy, I think of this era today, the best people who make experiences, whether they're designers or not, are ones who understand the underlying material, the computation. Which brings us neatly to your new book, which is coming out later this year, which is How to Speak Machine. Just tell us a little bit about the thesis behind that. Well, when I began talking about computational design, I discovered that no one knew what the word computation meant. So what I've been on a journey around is an easier way to explain what is computation, which is what everyone in Silicon Valley knows. We hear this phrase, exponential speed. What does that mean? Well, it's happening. We hear Elon Musk say the singularity is coming. What does that mean? When's it coming? And so I lay out how to explain what exponential speed means. I lay out why the computer is able to work in this world of exponential speed and how it impacts how products get made today. Can you give us a simple example? So... There are like three aspects, and I'll give you the entire three chapters in a quick one minute. The first is that computation can loop forever. That makes no sense. If you tell something to start, it's going to get tired eventually. Computers never get tired. The second factor is that computers can span infinite space and also become infinitesimally detail-oriented. So when someone says, I can't find a needle in a haystack, a computer can effortlessly. And the third factor is that computation can model living systems. I could be here as an algorithm talking with you, and you might not know it. I could never do these three things, build them out of metal or wood. It's impossible. But in Silicon Valley, it's the norm. And so how do non-tech companies level up on that? Because at the moment, it feels as though... It's a sort of asymmetric competition. The five of the world's most valuable companies are tech companies right now. And is everyone else just going to get wiped out unless they learn how to compete? And let's not forget China, right. <laughs> where there's like 10 like Google-sized companies there too. Right. Well, you know, the outcome of the book was realizing that, yes, computation is weird. And yes, you have to make products differently. But there's a problem that occurs, which is you create imbalance. You automate bad things when these systems are deployed at scale. And so what is the solution became troubling to me. And that's when my new employer knocked on my door and asked, hey, do you want to work on turbocharging the established companies? Publisa Sapien reached out to me because the focus, Publisa Sapien now under Nigel Vaz's leadership, is primarily on digital business transformation which I had no idea what that was. I Googled it on the internet. I couldn't find it. But it sounded exciting because it didn't sound like making more ads. It sounded like working with companies who used to be doing really well, 
have been suffering under the big four, big five, big 10 tech companies out there and haven't figured out how to change their cultures and processes to compete. So you think it's possible? You don't think it's just a steamrolling exercise and Amazon eventually eats the world? Or I've been told by so many people in Silicon Valley to give up on this idea. One of my favorite comments was, do you think someone like Google's going to like let the older companies catch up? At the same time, I'll talk to some of my friends on Google who will say, thank goodness you're doing that because we need competition right now. We're worried. Why? Why? Because when you understand computation loops forever, it can be infinitely large and can micro detail you. It can be a living system. It can automate the most horrible things. I'll give an example. There was a case just three years ago where Google launched a search algorithm for images. And it's, this is a human, this is a cup, this is a whatever. If you showed that system a person with darker colored skin, it would identify them as a gorilla. And people paused and said, how is this possible? It's actually quite easy because if the training data set for the machine learning algorithm is primarily people who have what I call paler skin, then it's gonna do great with them. If it doesn't include people with darker skin color, it's not gonna identify them. And that's an example of what happens when you don't have people who are very diverse building these systems. And since you were in Silicon Valley, I'm sure you noticed that the people making these systems were not highly diverse, skewing heavily towards men. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. And in particular, that's why you end up with companies who have CEOs who are men who create apps to look at menstruation cycles because they understand it so well. <laughs> right. So diversity can be a competitive weapon against Silicon Valley. Absolutely. All kinds of diversity, age diversity, culture diversity. It's such a powerful thing. But how are you going to convince the most powerful companies in the world that diversity is important when they're killing it? So that's why I don't think that's possible. That's why when Publicity knocked on my door with the opportunity to work with companies like McDonald's, Lloyd's, all these companies that you knew and are like trying their best, I want to be part of that. Before you joined Publicist Sapient, you were working at Automatic, which is a startup that's behind WordPress. Before that, you were at Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital company. I guess if you're starting a new venture or backing a new venture, you can get those principles in place early. How do you bring that to a more established business? You know, hope is a funny word because it sounds like you're being over-optimistic, but I come from the era of 2007 when my friend gave me this book called Audacity of Hope by this unknown politician named Barack Obama. I was a tenured professor at MIT, which means I didn't have to work anymore. I was set. I had my IPO. And then my friend gave me this book and I was like, whoa, I'm an American. I'm like taking it easy now. This person's saying we have to do bigger and more important things. And that's why I actually escaped the golden cage of forever happiness. And 
What I'm thinking about is my hope comes from when I was at Kleiner Perkins. I started the design and tech report, modeled after Mary Meeker's report. And I started looking at why was it that Silicon Valley was so interested in design? And if you look at the acquisitions made over that past 20 years, everything started to change after 2009 because that's when smartphones were becoming consumerized and regular people began to use computers for the first time. Before that, it was nerds or maybe work. But after then, it was like everyone had a smartphone. And so the standards for experience shot up. So every tech company built before 2009 was disadvantaged because they were desktop server client model. Every company made after 2009 was mobile cloud-based. And so they were better acquisition targets. And most of the older tech companies began to acquire them. So there was a leapfrogging problem, but many of the old tech companies haven't actually caught up. So my belief is that we're in a new era where the older companies are more advantaged than the tech companies because the tech companies realize they're automating these bad imbalance type things. That AI is actually too powerful and their cultures can't create diverse outcomes. And so it could be that the older companies with a much more broader perspective on how they make products in relationship to their people who have believed in them for a long time, decades, that they have the right DNA to reprogram a new kind of AI. One thing you say in your most recent design and tech report is that AI is boring. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Was I got... that in the context of design? That seems a strange thing to... Uh, oh, so... thanks for noticing that. <laughs> I mean, I keep clippings to make these reports. You know, I'm sure you do too when you pull stories together. I realized my folder of AI was like 30x bigger than every other bookmark. And so I was like, no, I don't want to give AI more energy to feel it's awesome. That's why. Don't flatter the The machine learning algorithm will like, oh my gosh, AI is amazing. I'm going to recommend it to everybody. (laughs) How do you make sure that you can design something that isn't visible or even knowable, right? I mean, part of the problem of AI for many people is it's just a kind of black box and you put the data in, it gives you the answer out. And how do you design that? Can you control it? Oh my gosh. Actually, this is in the book. So I lay out what is the old AI and the new AI. When I was in France two years ago, someone taught me about bread. She was showing me how there's pan levain and pan à levure. So it's two kinds of bread and they look the same. They're baguettes, but they're two kinds of baguettes. One is made with what's called natural yeast, and the other is made with synthetic yeast. So a synthetic yeast baguette smells like bread bread. The one that's Levan, you smell it, and it's a little bit sour. You know, you were in San Francisco, so sourdough. Yeah. So They're trying to keep the culture alive. So that you got to get this. You got to figure out these two breads. The natural smelling bread, you're like, wow, that smells, right? The other bread doesn't have that smell. So I think of the old AI, it had the natural yeast. It's like, that that's a robot on the other end. You know, it's got some if-then rules. It's like, whoop, made a mistake. You know, wasn't fluid. But the synthetic yeast, the olivier AI, you can't even tell. It smells like nothing. And so this new kind of AI is powered by data. So back to your question, the way to improve this newer kind of AI is to feed it more data, feed it more diverse data sets. And if you don't, what you end up with, there's like an automated sentencing algorithm to manage court cases. And of course, if it uses past data, it will ding you for coming from a, in the US, a zip code 
of an impoverished neighborhood because you're more likely to commit crime and therefore I will sentence you longer, which tends to be people who are either poor white or poor non-white, and then you're stuck. So unless you pour in new data, this new AI will not get smarter. So it's less about designing the output, it's about designing the input. It's designing the inputs and the people who do this work have to be conscious of it. That's why when I was at Microsoft recently, they were showing me this pack of cards. It's really cool. It's asking five questions about ethics. Who will this impact if this has unintended consequences? What's your background? And how do you relate to the background of those who will actually receive this trained ML? So if you don't actually have it as part of the meeting, you will end up automating imbalance. Another thing that you mentioned in the 2019 design report that came out earlier this year was the tech industry's tension between useful and cool, and that cool tends to win a little bit too often. Why do you think that is, and how can that be reined in? Well, I think when you're in Silicon Valley, cool is really important. It's like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. On Instagram, if you pick a picture of something useful, it's like, what is that? If you pick something cool, oh my gosh, that's cool. So... I think that's a tendency. However, people want things that are useful now. Arguably always have. They always have. <laughs> but in an era of spectacle, it's hard to find them. And I remember actually when I was at the Media Lab and I had a new assistant, I said, what do you think of the word design? And her immediate reaction was with a little distaste. Like, to me, it means slick, overdone. And I never thought about how, like, yeah, that's another take on that. But if you look at the history of design... Design has either been about the slick, you know, shiny, or really good. My friend at Muji has a great phrase. He calls it the difference between wow and after wow. Wow is like amazing, you know? You look at it amazing and you buy it. After wow is you buy the thing, you bring it home, you've had it for a month in your house, and you're like, wow. So Muji's so goal is the after wow. So I think of the after wow as this amazing experience, whereas the wow is confused with cool design or whatever. Do you feel like Silicon Valley is still the kind of petri dish that it used to be for finding out what's next? I mean, we've talked about the diversity challenges that that part of the world has. People there see the future a little earlier, but I wonder if they still actually see what will give the after wow as opposed to just what's kind of impressive to the geeks. Well, I don't know this region. I don't know the UK well, but in the US, we have Detroit where cars were made. So, I mean, I can imagine when you visited Detroit in the heyday when like GM and Ford were like doing amazing stuff. And, you know, Irosarnin designed the GM headquarters. So it was basically the Apple Donut headquarters. So Detroit was Silicon Valley of machines that transport people. And then eventually it became commoditized, dried up. But for a while, it had an amazing ecosystem. Or like Hollywood, back when it was really hard to make movies. But still, people go to Hollywood. So I think Silicon Valley has been that place where if you're in tech, you show up there and do amazing things. Plus, there's lots of money there, too. But given where Detroit ended up, you can project that Silicon Valley will be like that eventually if something isn't done. And the if something isn't done part has to be about diversifying viewpoints. What I love is meeting so many Europeans in Silicon Valley 
who all hate living there, <laughs> as I discovered. <laughs> like, I have so many friends who are like, yeah, Google bought my company, and I'm going to be gone like the day after all my, all my options vest. And sure enough, they're like back in Paris. So there is some diversity, but not enough to support a lot of innovation. I'm concerned about that. Do you think then that that's an opportunity for somewhere else to sort of emerge or is that already happening in China or in the same way that, you know, the era of great automotive innovation has maybe waned a little bit, electric autonomy notwithstanding? I don't mean the bubble bursts again, but we just kind of get to the end of this moment where there was this huge frenzy of innovation around PCs, smartphones and the Internet. I don't know. You know, I'm really curious about AR and VR, mainly from the viewpoint that I've seen it for so long. And I went out and bought Oculus Rift. The first one? What's the new the one? Oculus Quest. Quest. I bought that one, yeah. I was like blown away by how the onboarding was. I was like, this is ridiculous. This is an expensive onboarding. I took my credit card. I bought an app within like five minutes. It's hanging up in my room. I don't use it. But I remembered like if I were like that age, I might use it a lot. It's lighter and easier. And it offers different constraints that we don't really know how to do well in 3D yet. Also, VR or AR. I think that's an interesting space. But back to like, where will it happen? I think that we underestimate China so much because we're afraid of it in different ways. But look at mobile payments. They're the Wakanda of mobile payments. You know, they're like so far ahead, face recognition. And then what we'll do is we'll say, that's really frightening. But the fact is they're already running and moving. So they're like so far ahead. That said though, will that end eventually too? I think so because the diversity of views is so important. And even though Shenzhen is becoming more international, you just need so much more diversity to support interesting ideas. That's interesting. Just to go back to the AR, VR thing, there are some serious design challenges there, both from the inside and the outside, right? How you look wearing these things, still kind of dorky. Totally, yeah. Uh, but then there's also the lessons that we learned from Google Glass, which is that if you've got a camera pointing out from your face 24-7, that can kind of creep people out a little bit. Do you feel like those problems are getting to be solved? Google Glass is, what, eight? years ago now? I'm smiling because I heard a story about how when glass was coming out and it wasn't like deployed at a large scale yet, Beyonce contacted Google PR to wear it at a concert and they turned her down. Now, I got to wonder what would have happened <laughs> if Beyonce wore glass? Why did they turn it down? Well, it was, there was some other artists that were going to go like, that didn't fit their brand or something like that. But I was like, what would have happened if... My point is, if we popularize something that even seems ridiculous, do you remember Second Life? Yeah. Remember Second Life where like- Still going, I think. Well, when it first came out, the weirdest thing is when you're typing to someone else, you'd see someone standing in three space typing. And we all thought it looked really weird. But look at smartphones. People like to stand up in the middle of the airport. So I think certain norming of weird things is not impossible. And as AR, VR gets lighter- I don't know. I think it could happen. What about how you interact with that and how 3D computing works? I mean, people have certain ideas from science fiction of Minority Report. You're kind of moving information around with your hands and that kind of stuff. And I know people have tried to build those. How far along do you think we are on figuring that out? Well, look what you're doing. You have an iPad. It's as if the table had the screen on top of it. So I think we're just getting more used to that. But I want to digress because that world where there's screens everywhere, where information is everywhere... There's this ethical part that we begin to touch upon quickly, which is, is that okay? How will it impact everything? 
what if you and I were surrounded in this video room where, like, I can see a Trump tweet every second? I wouldn't be able to focus on you. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe it. <laughs> you know, so I think in Silicon Valley and any technology space, people love to show you what's possible. But we do need that part, the human part that asks, is that a good idea? Is that a wow? Or let me show you what an after wow is like. Great. I think that's a good moment to finish on. Thank you very much indeed, John, for taking the time to chat. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, we welcome comments and suggestions from listeners. So please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.